0: What do you love about being outside and active?
1: I'm I'm sure I've spent more time outdoors than in. That just feels like home. Enjoy what you can do, because you never know what is around the corner. Just being
0: outdoors, in the fresh air, it just clears my mind. Fully immersed in nature is what brings me the most joy. Hello and welcome back to the Outside and Active podcast, where this week my guest is no stranger to the microphone. Having commentated on the Olympic Games, no less, I am very happy to be joined This week by Ed Lee. As well as many other things, he is co-presented alongside Graham Bell on Ski Sunday. Ed is one of the most recognisable winter sports personalities in the world. Beginning his career working for Channel 4 as a presenter for the popular TV show Free Sports on 4, Ed has some incredible stories to tell and does a really mean air guitar. In this week's episode, Ed speaks about the steps that led him to where he is today and lifts the lid on his commentary preparation and even gives an insight into the infamous Lindsay Jacob Ellis moment in 2006. A little bit later in the episode, I'm going to be chatting about two friends of the podcast who are this week's sponsors, Thunder Drinks and Ellis Brigham. But for now, let's get straight into the conversation with my guest, Ed Lee. Ed, thank you very much for joining me. I'm going to kick off this podcast by offering you a piece of advice, and it's a piece of advice that comes from a previous guest of the podcast, who was also at the National Snow Show and the London Snow Show, along with you um, a few weeks ago now. And the advice comes from Neil Campbell, Neil Nine Lives Campbell, and his advice is very simple. It's to just be a nice person, just be a kind person, which I thought was very to the point and very good. What's your instant reaction to that advice?
1: Uh I'd say that's very sage advice. Tom <laughs> That's uh yeah, it's such a lovely one. It's such an easy one on the surface, but it's actually so hard to do sometimes when frustration, anger, um those emotions get the better of you. It's but yeah, if you if you use that advice, it's such I hundred percent agree with him. Uh I would I would always use that one. I find it hard sometimes. I'm definitely an emotionally led person. But as you get older, and I'd say Neil's probably the same, it's one of those things, the more emotional you are as a kid, the more passionate you are at a certain stage. But then, yeah, you grow up and you start realising, ah, I can, you don't, it's more important to be kind than to be right. Um, (laughs) That's a good way of looking at it. I... Yeah, I that's definitely my one. I am a terminal know it all. Because I the reason why I can do the job I do as in TV presenting, commentating, especially, I have great memory recall. It's not quite photographic, but it's close to, but that enables me to be right a lot of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least or at least believe that I am. And that is a curse. In it's great for commentary. It's terrible yep. for personal relationships. So, yeah, I try and take that on board as often as possible. I'm not very good at it, but it's definitely there. So, thank you, Neil, for a bit just, of advice. Yeah,
0: just be a nice, nice person. Can sometimes be easier said than done. But I like the way um, I like the way you've explained that. There's another tradition that we have, um, and that is asking the question to the guest: What do you love about being outside and active? <sighs>
1: Um, it removes all of my to-do list. It removes anything that's gnawing away at my brain. As soon as I get outside, as soon as I'm doing anything in nature, then I'm present and I'm enjoying that moment. I'm relaxed, focused, but in a really nice way. Um, and I'm calm. I, I love just quieting my brain and that's what it's always done for me. And it doesn't matter what I'm doing. Could be skateboarding, could be snowboarding, could be surfing, could be... I've got into crayfish diving recently mm. and I find that is just amazing. It's, a friend said recently, me, recently to me, it's the closest mortals get to interstellar travel. <laughs> really? Explain that a little bit more. Yeah. Why? Well, I've... I've always dived. I used to dive in Greece when I was a kid. I was a windsurf instructor from 17 or 18 through to about 22. Uh, And I'd deliver yachts and uh, do bits of windsurfing instruction around the Med. And I used to love just floating around going for an hour, hour and a half, just on my own. And you float around, dive, check stuff out. i I tried spear fishing there, but the sea was so dead; it just didn't feel right. But where I live now, South Island of New Zealand, the seas are so like there's so much wildlife down here, good and bad. Um, (laughs) What do you mean by bad? What's the bad bit? uh, great, huge great whites. Oh right, you okay. See a lot of big sharks, um, lot of bull seals and sea lions. Mm. They're like the Rottweilers of the sea. I describe them as, um, yeah. There's, but yeah, you you get to. It's a completely different world. It removes you one hundred percent from the like what what you're used to seeing. So, like all of the flora, all of the fauna. That you see once you stick your head underwater is completely different, and just floating around between rock structure, and they we we have a quota of six crayfish that you can take out okay. um, per person per day, and so the sea's so full of life. You'll get that in an hour, an hour and a half. So a lot of times you just uh, we'll go out and spend three hours, and you're just watching, looking at stuff. It's incredible i love it
0: the sea is something which i always have such a massive awe about but also scares me so much like the power and the nature of the ocean and water is something like the old i don't know whether it's a myth or a truth of that we only know five percent of what's actually underneath the ocean or we've explored five percent of it and we we there's so much of an unknown about the ocean itself that it's like you said it's that closest thing you can get to interstellar sort of travel it's um yeah i can i can appreciate that
1: yeah, the friend of mine that had that quote, it's the old adage that we we actually know more about space than we do about the bottom of the ocean. So I think that analogy works quite well in that respect. Uh, we, it's something that's right there for a lot of people. Most people, are, you think how far you travel to ride your bike or... Um, I mean, a runs different. You can walk out your door and go for a run. But to get to the ocean or the sea, sometimes it's only... Like, for a lot of people, especially if you're in the UK, it's usually not more than an hour and a half, two hours. So you can go and do it over a weekend once a month, and, but it's something that we just don't do. Mm. You know, I, I don't do enough of, certainly.
0: So how does uh, the experience in the atmosphere of the bottom of, you know, Earth on the, near, the, near the, sea, the sea level compared to being on the top of Snowy
1: Mountains? <laughs> uh, similar, really similar sensation for me because it's just something special and as I get older it's, when I started I so I said I was windsurf instructor um sailing instructor I used to I did that to team up with my winter seasons and I built my life as a kid around being in those environments 24 mm. 7 and I live somewhere beautiful now I'm close to the mountains but the man i think seaside resorts and ski resorts have similar vibes they're bubbles and it's very difficult to sustain family and professional life in those areas uh it's not impossible i've i've tried it out but to get a good school to to be able to work in the jobs you want you can't often stay in those places so for me now even though i've dedicated my life to it and i'm 30 minutes from the top of a mountain, two and a half hours from the coast, I still, it's very, very special for me to get there. And it's a real treat. I never take it for granted. Even though I've done it my whole life, it's something that I really love. And I put a lot of emphasis on being able to do that at least once a week, I'd say.
0: Would you describe yourself as an adrenaline junkie?
1: a really tough question I ask myself this quite a lot my appetite for, for risk is diminishing but I got a couple of we've got a skate bowl and a really good skate park here um, and I go and I I test myself there and the consequences are quite high it's not like running where occasionally you might roll an ankle mm or riding your bike where you might slide out if i go and ride my bike i'll ride a decent downhill or enduro track i still skate and i am still learning tricks but the way i i'm not as reckless in the way i I learn them so i maybe wouldn't say that i'm an adrenaline junkie but i do really enjoy pushing myself and I suppose the perception is from the outside. If you look at someone, I've spent dedicated 30 years of my life to um, surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding, diving, um, mountain mountain biking less time. That was when I learned later. But I like the feeling I get from pushing myself in those sports. How hard I push myself now, a fast approaching 50, is very different to the way I would have done in my early 20s, I suppose, is is what I'm trying to say.
0: I'm just jumping on this conversation to tell you about Thunder Toffee Vodka, the mountain's best kept secret. Originally created in Val de in the French Alps, Scream Retail went on to launch the first pure Toffee flavoured vodka onto the UK market. At 29.9%, Thunder is now bottled and blended in the UK unequalled and unique. Thunder Toffee Vodka is about stylish simplicity of taste and it's best served cold as a shot over ice or in a delicious cocktail. Synonymous with style, elegance and sophistication, it is created by blending a premium five times distilled wheat grain vodka with a toffee made from all natural ingredients. Thunder Toffee Vodka is available now in Sainsbury's Supermarket, so you can visit their website, thunderdrinks.co.uk, to use the Sainsbury's store locator to find your nearest branch. Because a lot of these sports, a lot of the ones you've just mentioned, seem to have quite a lot of overlaps characteristically and also with the environment that they they foster and the people that are involved with them. What is it about those certain type of sports that maybe where people do cross over quite a lot?
1: I think well, it's finding a lot of them are seasonal. So, as as dedicated as you are, skateboarding in winter, like right, when it's cold, it just concrete feels that much harder, or the wood feels that much harder, your body feels that much more brittle. Um, I surf up until we're we're in quite a, because we're Southern Hemisphere, we're in, uh, like. Not, I think we're one of the closest civilizations to Antarctica. The water gets pretty cold here after our May. Mm. May, June through till September, it's pretty Baltic. So as much as you want to do it, it's just not that pleasant. So you, I run with the seasons, and I'll mountain bike, surf, uh, skate in the summers, and I'll um, snowboard, splitboard um, a little bit more in the winters. But it's, yeah, it's, I suppose it's, you, it's it's all about your perceptions of what you need. And I, I think the thing that I've learned, I'm not an adrenaline junkie, but when the conditions are right and when I feel right, then I'll push. It's learning to listen to yourself and it's learning to listen to the environment about when's the right day to push yourself and when it's not. And I've got better at doing that, and I think I'm... S- that's what makes. A, I'm starting to look at 50. You start looking around. You're like, okay, how much longer can I skateboard? And a friend of mine who's younger, it's like I might be done on this. We were we were on a long drive, and I was like, really? Because for me, there's ways that you can tailor these things to to make them work for you, and it's what you need or you want out of them. I've just started learning. A friend is got he froths like a tray full of beers (laughs) about foiling and he's desperately trying to get me into it and he's got me out a couple of times now and i had about 30 seconds it felt like two minutes it was probably about 30 seconds up on the foil and cruising across this bay and I, it's the first... I'd spent about two hours. I felt like I was getting in a knife fight every time I got <laughs> up on this thing, just wrestling. A, I was wing foiling. So you got the wing and you've got this alien sensation under you that you're trying to learn. But it was really interesting. I'm really used to being good at what I'm doing and being terrible at something and having that new sensation was really nice again. So... Yeah, it was that was that was interesting. I'm so used to being good at something and being able to control so many mm. of the factors involved in it. Stepping out of my comfort zone and really testing myself was was really lovely again, but also unnerving at the same time because I've got that awareness that oh, how how much longer will this last? And I've damaged myself so badly over the years that I'm not not willing to make those sacrifices <laughs> so often.
0: Well, no, it's like like you said, you can. <laughs> Have the ability to learn something new at you know at, at what whatever age and can there's never there's no sort of stopping point of going well no sorry you can't start running anymore or foiling or skiing snowboarding whatever at this point because you, you're too too old like obviously yes like you said you may be taking more precautions uh, and thinking about things differently but the, the, you know you're encouraged to try new things at whatever age
1: there's but that's. I think with action sports, especially, I grew up as really sort of second generation in snowboarding, and uh, sort of what would be been third or fourth in skateboarding. But they were very still very young sports. Skateboarding had only really had its first uh, boom, commercial boom. Actually, I suppose. 60s it had something but the 70s were its first big boom and I was in that second wave of the mid 80s I was 10, 11 when I picked it up and there was in all action sports at that time there was a perception from our parents of, my. I remember my dad being embarrassed that I skateboarded still when I was 17, 18 he was really a bit like when are you going to let this go and Kind of could, couldn't have that conversation with him, and I get it from his perspective. Like, people look at that, and I imagine it was like a sort of gaming is for parents now, and they're kind of like, "You're not going to grow out of this." And for kids, like it's that's life, that's mm. where they live, it's how they socialize. And like skateboarding was the same for me, and my parents didn't get that, just as a lot of us don't get that gaming is life for kids now. So yeah, it's important. I think people look at it now, and the likes of Tony Hawk, Kelly Slater, have changed the way people look at those sports. Oh, you can do it for life. It is football. It is athletics. It is whatever you want it to be. But yeah, but it it wasn't that way always. And there's been, you've had like there's had to there's been a push by my generation and the people before me, sort of saying, no, this is something you can do. You can always do it. Perception shift, definitely. Definitely.
0: Athlete tested and expedition proven. Check out the new Summit Series from the North Face, which redefines backcountry snow sports clothing. Using Gore-Tex Pro for durable, waterproof and breathable performance, guaranteed. The link to see more about this product on the Ellis Brigham site is in the description of this podcast. So make sure to go and check it out when you finish listening. When I'm researching in thinking about questions and, and themes to talk about with people that are coming to the podcast often one of the first places that I go to is actually their Instagram because I feel like in a bio you can actually tell quite a lot from from someone depending on what they put and it, it, yours interested me because you say I'm passionate about stories collecting and telling them and I just wanted to ask you to elaborate on that slightly.
1: I do a lot of different things I work across a lot of different platforms, but. First and foremost, I think if someone asks me what I do, I say that I'm a journalist. And that's, to me, that's the definition of a journalist. You collect stories and then try and find creative ways of telling them. And it's, I, lo- I love doing it. It's it's such, a, I feel really privileged to have been able to do that through my life. Mm. In It was as a kid growing up. It was the currency of my family. My granddad, is, he was, my mum's dad, was an amazing storyteller, absolute lunatic, and he'd, like, he'd crack himself up, <laughs> and they were brilliant stories, and he'd have the, the, the family in thrall. So the greatest currency you could have in my family was holding the attention of the dinner table. And if you had something worth saying, then... And that made me a pathological liar as a young child.
0: <laughs> so good good memory and pathological liar. Two two yeah. key elements of becoming a good storyteller.
1: Well, the, and then getting found out and suffering from incredible embarrassment at um, <laughs> being found out as a liar. I think the first big one I told was that um, all the kittens that our cat had, had had drowned in the toilet. And that rumour going round school when I was about six, and then parents coming to the house to find out if their kittens were still alive. And I was like, oh, Ed said that they'd all drowned in the toilet. And my mum was like...
0: <laughs> You're looking up going I off.
1: So <laughs> I learned that you could be... I'm known as exaggerating Ed, because I've got a healthy love of the 10%. Uh, but... Over time, that has been diminished, and I've learned how to tell the story better rather than embellish it. So, I'd like to think that I have.
0: I, I like I the way you might disagree. Yeah, the positioning it as, as storytelling, because some people may perceive, um, say, commentary, for example, as oh, you're just, you're just kind of describing what's going on. Well, actually, it's so much more than that
1: it's uh, that's that's really perceptive because it it's 100% storytelling so the way i would prep for commentary you've got all of these headlines the storylines coming in who's injured who's rookie who's the favorite who's like who's um not been performing well who's choked previously these are all individual stories they're going that are going to tie together so you're trying to find all of those stories preempt them some and then it might be that the wind becomes the story it might be that the conditions but there are so many different stories and some of the ones you've identified are going to work some of the ones you haven't but you're telling that story commentary is telling the story Mm. in real time and that is i love doing that one it's it's such a lovely uh, that's one of my favorites i love writing as well when it works writing is just fantastic when when it's not coming or you can see that you're not you're not getting the telling the story you want it's really frustrating but if you can when writing works i love it it's my favorite and but it's you have to be disciplined and you have to be writing a lot I think that's the key to that, which I don't get to do these days. To change—it's been one of the more scary parts of my job—is that. And if you went on my Insta, you'll see it. I love watching people on social media have so much respect for people who can harness storytelling on those platforms. But it's not one that comes. My wife's really good at it, but it's not one that comes naturally to me. I'm not as—I like—I like longer form. Mm. I love a bit of waffle, and I find <laughs> it really hard to edit myself. Oh, and social media, media
0: is is six seconds, grab your attention in that six seconds, and only that six seconds type thing. Um, and you're right; some people ha- just take it take to it like a duck, duck to water. But obviously, it's um, it's a tough thing as well. But um, I, I was interested in asking you around. What you say about commentary and telling story storytelling? I imagine it's a skill that you developed and you're still developing it over time. I mean, was, was it 2003, was it Free Sports on 4 where you kind of started that journey?
1: Um, A little bit before that, okay. De- certainly on TV. Mm. As a TV platform, that was the first big one. But the, definitely, I started to, like the commentary especially uh, in 90s. 96- I got my first live MCing gig in 95 at the British Championships. I'd hurt myself and I couldn't ride. So I got on the microphone and steadily that developed. And you used to have the the ski show it was called the Daily Mail ski show. Was it in um, London? Yeah. And it's now become uh, the snow shows in Birmingham and London. Then Bordex came along and they would each have snow ramps and I used to go and commentate on those with a guy called Christian Stevenson, who's now called DJ (laughs) Barbecue. That's a name change. (laughs) Yeah, he was, so Christian and I, Christian was, he was the Vans snow and skateboard team manager. He did MTV Snowball with Kylie Minogue. He did Rad on Channel 5. Uh... And then together we set up Laughing Gear, which was a a commentary company. And we do all of the major snow events around Europe, Air and Style, the Arctic Challenge, the Battle, uh, Evolution in Davos, European Open, now the Larks Open. We do all of these different snow and skate comps, BMX demos through the summer. And if you're doing live emceeing, it's commentary, but you're getting instant visual reactions from the crowd. Mm. You can see what works. So we messed around with dressing up. We, I basically learned, I did my 10,000 hours every weekend for four or five years between 97, 98 was when it started happening regularly, through to free sports on four, and I was still doing it then. Um, I did five or six years, 30, 40 weekends a year, on the mic, learning what worked, how a mainstream audience could how you could unlock a mainstream audience and make them understand action sports, these the idiosyncrasies of skateboarding, BMX, snowboarding, and free skiing. It was and you you got to test out what worked, how people connected, how and for me it was it was really easy. It was always the human interest stories. Mm. People like people, will know what the trick is by the tone you use. They may not understand what the grab is, the rotation, um, but they can see with their eyes whether at, they land it or not, and something will click as to whether it's stylish, but to get them to buy into it, it was always about the human stories, and that was what I sort of got my head around. You test out different ways of telling those, and for me, that was like, Commentary and Broadcasting University, just putting those hours in live. And I watch people now come into it. It also strips away all of your nerves because it, I find it really easy to get up in front of a camera, but you have to get yourself pretty hyped up to go and walk out in front of 15 20,000 people. And be that energy. we were doing back then. Mm. It was like, whew, that was a hit of adrenaline. You were like, okay, here we go. Ooh, 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 <laughs> this is it. Boom. And it was... It was When you get that right, it was incredible. And I do miss it. But I don't have the, I, I've done it a couple of times recently and it takes so much energy.
0: Mm. Because also you're, I mean, you said earlier, you know, I'm not an adrenaline junkie, but you must have to feed off of the energy of the crowd, but also the energy of what's actually taking place in front of you in competition and, and the activities that are taking place as well and sort of replicate that in your voice and in your
1: energy yeah that's the thing you get some you get some athletes who you're just like yes thank you because they their energy translates directly to the crowd and you don't need to do anything and then you get some athletes who so that's just not their style it's not their personality and in action sports self-expression is part of it so you you get that you get athletes who are very quiet and they might be really smooth with their style and it's beautiful to watch but you don't get that same energy whereas you get some athletes who are loud and flamboyant and, and yeah it's really easy they'll lift the energy naturally but and you get that's the thing it's like going to a gig you get some gigs where everything just clicks and it works and then you get some gigs where it doesn't so much but
0: and it must present different challenges um say that speaking to that sort of audience that are already converted as such that people that know what they're talking about and they're feeding off the energy and they're there um, compared to yeah, commentating on an Olympic Games where you'll have a load of people tuning in that know what they're looking at, know what they're talking, to, talking about or what you're talking about, but also a lot of people that are tuning in to this sport for the first time maybe. So how do you approach that?
1: Uh, I've learned over time. So a really good way of illustrating this is to look at the um tokyo olympics and the park skateboarding is fast and dynamic people are getting airborne so it's it's easier to translate there's there's certain basic aspects of physics that people can understand you have to go really fast and that board's not attached to your feet so you're going to bounce up into the air but a lot of people don't skateboard but it it was, because Sky Brown was in there for Great Britain, there was a bit of British hope. So you're like, yep. okay, we can make this work and I can my Mark Churchill, who was doing it with me, I said to Church, do it like you do it for a skate audience. His tone of voice will tell people when they're doing something good. So you can go, lovely backsmith. He's got that front now. We go through the backside 50, 50 through the corner. Oh, and he's got the McTwist. Like, and you know that the front smith is a set up trick, the back 50/50 is a set up trick, or we've seen it before. And then you lift yourself for the big trick. So people are listening to your tone of voice if they can't understand the trick. But you take that to uh, the street skateboarding, where it's slower, it's less dynamic, and it's super technical. And the medals are going to be decided by very small details. Mm-hmm potentially foot placement when landing, how clean and clear the catch and the pop are on the trick. It's not going to translate. Just going to, uh, can you hear that? The food blender.
0: <laughs> Can't hear the food blender, but now, now I know it's okay, going on. <laughs> good.
1: I'll carry it. On. I'll carry on. You can chop that bit out, but the, so you've got that aspect where it's really difficult to describe. And then you have format is really hard. So, in the street skateboarding, you have this wonderful format where they have two runs through the whole park, and the best run will count. And then they've got—is uh, it five attempts? Uh, two of which, four, three of which will count. So you've got four scores out of seven. And the the problem with that is is that if people start falling, if they drop four tricks. They're not getting anything, or if they drop three in the um single trick, that format means that you, Niger Houston was kind of out of the running before the last tricks. So when it goes well, that format can elevate everything, and you have this incredible crescendo. But in Tokyo, it was the first skateboarding event, and it was just a bit meh. Right. And you're like, I'm working with the sport that not many people understand, and the format has dropped. It can be brilliant, and I love it, and I actually think it's the best way of working street skateboarding. But in that case, the occasion got the better of a few of the biggest names. And you just have to face it then. The comp's been, like, it's not quite as good as it can be, and no matter what I do, I can't fix that. That's not my job. My job is to tell people what's going on, but you have to have enough experience to know that you just can't yell through that. One of the most interesting and best piece of pieces of advice a producer gave me in my first big mainstream job, the Olympics in 2006, first time I'd done it for the BBC. A very, very good producer. He's always got the best out of me. And after the first or second event, he said, happiness paints white. He said, you're just at 11 and everything's great. You're yelling and screaming, and everything's at 11. You need to learn to bring it down, like bring us down to three or four, and then bring us up just for the big moments to 11 and learn how to tell, like, everything isn't great. It's like the Lego song, Everything is Awesome. <laughs> it's like, just bring it down. Not everything is awesome. Tell us why things are difficult, tell us why people are struggling and then enjoy those low moments because they'll give you the springboard to reach the high moments and that was that was brilliant it that one really really helped creates that
0: contrast between the high moments are super high if you keep that kind of like you said that, that dial at 3 and then you can you can work it up that's yeah interesting and like you said it, working with different producers do they want different things from you as well or obviously it obviously depends on what what
1: you're commentating on um i think i'm a producer's nightmare now (laughs) because working in the the world of action sports if you're in that realm a lot of times you're self-producing when when i first started work on ski sunday they didn't really know what to do with me no one at the bbc really understood action sports so after a season of ski sunday and kind of trying to fit in with the alpine ski racing i was like okay this this isn't really working I need to do this myself. So Mm. I came back down to New Zealand, got a cameraman, and we went and filmed three features, uh, skateboarding, snowboarding, and surfing in a day, a piece on a purpose-built snow park with a single lift, and a feature on, I think, Jamie Anderson or someone. And I took those back, and they were like, this is brilliant, what else can you do? And from then on, I started to learn... I had no formal training, so it was terrible to start with. But (laughs) my passion, I think, just about got me through. But I've learned to produce over the years, and I can now – I know what I need, and I'm thinking through stuff from a producer's brain as well as a presenter's brain. And you know how you want to – I know what story I want to build if I'm filming a feature. And it might take a different turn, but generally you're like, okay, this person – had this terrible accident. They've come back from it, and now they've won an event. And we'll, we'll kind of, go a little bit of podium, and then we'll tell the backstory, and then we'll get ourselves back there. And it's. Go on. No, it's that's. So when you work with a producer, a lot of times they're kind of looking at me like, "What is this? <laughs> How do we do it?" I'm like, "I'll put my arm around." I'm like, "Well, this is going to be fun." <laughs> But uh, equally, it's it's still been big enough. I get to work with some really brilliant young producers uh, on Ski Sunday and at the Olympics, and it's so lovely. I've been in these sports so long, and I have a tendency to get – like you run out of ideas sometimes. You're looking at the same event, 17th year, and you're like, oh, God, how do we do this? And – 23 year old turns up and they're just full of enthusiasm and ideas and they're like, we're going to do this. And I'm like, brilliant. Complete Objective
0: view. Fresh, fresh, fresh. Yeah. And you, and you will teach them something as well. And and you kind of work together on that. Interesting. But listening to you talk about, you know, some elements of preparation and having the knowledge and having, you know, telling a story. Sometimes I imagine you have to have the ability to expect the unexpected when, some miraculous things happen and you have to react to it. And you have to, you know, commentate on that live, thinking of, obviously, the infamous Lindsay Jacob Ellis incident, gliding through, you know, clear victory, and then instantly something happens and you're reacting to that live.
1: People people always ask. I get I get to sit next to Tim Warwood, mm-hmm. who I just love. I often describe <laughs> it as like being able to sit in the pub, like commentary with him is like sitting in the pub without the beers and just chatting with your best mate. It's so easy. And people often ask us, do you prepare those lines? And the Jacob Ellis moment is a really good, it's proof for me that you can't, mm. you can't because as you say, that's a spontaneous moment. You've got no idea that it's going to be Tanya Frieden who comes through, but we come back to those 10,000 hours spent coming up with lines on the fly in the moment for a live audience it's i'd liken it to stand up comedy it's not as ter- like stand up comedy is terrifying mm. you can build you can build your material in stand up but the you if you go to stand up gigs you know the best people are thriving off what you see on like the interaction with the crowd yeah the way you build something with uh, a heckle or an outfit in the audience we always and i always say this it's not stand-up because we always had the sport if something died on its ass we could always go back to the sport you like you throw out some lines and then it comes back but those ten thousand hours i'd spent doing a decade of live commentary, live emceeing, in that moment when Jacobellis went down, your brain's there and it's got it. And I'm as full of adrenaline as the athletes are because you're watching and you're living it. So for me, it, like when your adrenaline's sparked, it's your synapses are ready and they're, they'll just charge into that and it's there. But, I mean, that's not to say... Within me, I can remember that moment and the joy and the relief that you have when your brain gives you that. It's almost like you can see it from the outside. <laughs> You're like, "Am I going to be big enough for this moment?" And there's a lot of them where there's one I can remember vividly: Nikolai Rogatkin, uh, one of the best FMB uh, free free ride mountain bike athletes in the world did this amazing 1080 at District Ride in Nuremberg, and it just, it didn't come. The words didn't come to me, and I didn't do the moment justice. And I, in that moment, you're really, you're like, oh, have I just done that to that athlete? Like, this is his moment, and I haven't bought the like, the energy to it. I haven't bought the words to it. You've got both sides
0: of the coin there.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to say that those moments are far, far less than the moments that it's worked. But it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot of responsibility there. And I, when it goes right, there is not a feeling in the world like it. It's it's almost as good, I imagine, as it is for the athlete. I love it and I'm, I'm so addicted to it.
0: Just before I ask you for your piece of advice, I just wanted to touch on, again, what you just said about co-commentators, Tim being one of them. Um, but how important is that relationship between whether it's two or more of you to be able to provide that entertainment and that oversight of what's going on as well?
1: It's critical. If you don't work as a team, then it, it's just, you can't go. And I mean, there's there's so many stories. I've never had it. I've had moments where I know it's not working. The, interestingly, the moment with Nikolai Regatkin that I just talked about, it was my first time in the booth with Cam McCall. And we was like it's not his fault. It's not my fault. It's just something that's not, Mm. it it just first go. You don't know each other. You don't know who's going to go. So there's not that confidence there that you've got each other's back. So yeah, the relationship is everything. And that chemistry that you have is the thing that really makes it work. But I know like there are some good commentators who've clashed in booths. like, And you, The professionals, you'd never know it's happening. But if two people um, uh, pronounce a name differently, I've (laughs) I've heard stories of people like screaming at like you press the cough buttons and they're screaming at each other in the booth. Like you pronounce it this way, and they're like, (laughs) go, and then like. The hand signals and then the cough buttons come off. Well, that was an incredible performance, wasn't it? <laughs> Bad, you know, no
0: one would know anything else, That's why you need a camera these constantly. have
1: got a habit of putting a, a GoPro in the booth, so I don't <laughs> think you can. Yeah.
0: Do. I think you can tell though. With certain sp- watching sport, you think you can sometimes tell when there's that sl- slight. Maybe it's just not quite flat. It might not even be that they're not getting on or whatever. It's just where, like you said, you. If you if you know someone that you're working with, you can you know where they're finishing off, and you can pick up and you kind of compliment each other's styles. Whereas sometimes you can tell if that's not quite happening in the way that they quite envisaged it. So
1: yeah, the the cardinal sin of commentary is talking over each other. So yeah, if you if you're doing that, then you know you're doing it wrong.
0: Ed, thank you so much for for a really really entertaining and interesting chat. Um, there's only one thing to ask left from you at the beginning offered you a piece of advice from uh, from neil and now is your opportunity to pass on a piece of advice to a guest coming onto the podcast in the near future
1: um the thing that i've learned i think over time is that it's all about the people i it's about who you surround yourself with and how you treat each other and if i could give anyone any advice it's to look after the people that you live your life with professionally and personally it's it's those relationships especially in work I, i know that when i get to work with good people then everything else takes care of itself success comes from building good teams and having respect for people. So that's the one bit of advice I'd give, I think.
0: Thank you so much. I look forward to passing that along. Cheers, Ed.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Tom.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Outside and Active podcast featuring famous Winter Olympic and Summer Olympic commentator, Ed Lee. Ed, thank you so much for coming and having a conversation with me. Um, Ed is based over in New Zealand, so it was very interesting for him to have Uh, The amazing weather that they're having and uh, being in an uh, an incredible atmosphere and me being in a uh, in a white room just outside of London in Surrey. Very different. But Ed, thank you so much. And thank you to you for listening to this episode. Um, I just want to ask you for a quick favor. If you're listening to this and you haven't done so before, then please do share this episode or this podcast as a whole with someone who you think would enjoy just as much as you. Honestly, it helps so much to grow this outside active community and keep people listening um thank you so much we'll be back next week with another episode of the podcast until that time i've been your host dominic brown and enjoy the outdoors